Hi, thank you for listening to the Spotlight Report, our weekly podcast in which we sit down and speak with current academics about their life and research in lab. If you like the Spotlight Report, you can subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or find it on any common podcast app. You can also directly find the podcast on our website, which is loft.optics.arizona.edu backslash podcast. Please comment any questions or ideas for people you would like us to interview in the future. Additionally, if you have more feedback, feel free to email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. So to start off this week, we are interviewing Dr. Brian Cooper-Suit, who uh, is working at a hospital studying sickle cell anemia and uh, a novel treatment method for it. Um, so yeah, just to start off with, Brian, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Brian. Um, I'm one of the uh, Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellows at Children's Hospital Oakland at UCSF. Um, I'm from Tucson, Arizona. And uh, went to the University of Arizona for college and then went to medical school out in Chicago at the University of Chicago and then residency at UCSF and uh, decided to do pediatric emergency medicine because I really like um, seeing kind of diversity of patients and um, diversity of problems and acuities. And then kind of found a passion for trying to treat um, patients for pain, which is one of the things I think we can do best in medicine is control pain um, and specifically in patients with chronic pain conditions. And at Children's Hospital Oakland, and especially at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Center, there's a huge population of sickle cell research that's going on. And so, um, yeah, that's been the direction that I'm going in and hope to continue to go in. So is this the main reason for you to go into the medical school? Do you have any reason for that? To go into medical school? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I did a lot of biochemistry in undergraduate, and um, I mean, I really liked the science that went into it, and um, learning about protein biochemistry is super interesting working in the lab is lots of fun but ultimately i felt like it was a little um hollow for me personally because i i really like to interact with people i did some volunteering i tried to kind of test out the idea of going to medical school or not by volunteering at hospice and so i volunteered at a hospice for about a year and a half and just found it to be like kind of like um profoundly kind of changing experience to take care of people who are in such like dire health conditions and kind of seeing that you can offer them empathy and compassion. Um, so kind of those two things together, I think it's kind of a common story, like this desire to, you know, and uh, work in science just in general, and then also to find your niche and be able to take care of people in a compassionate way. I think it leads a lot of people into medical school. So that was me. Uh, it's not a, like a terribly unique story, but it's my story. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. And what made you, um, normally when you hear about medical school, it's long, arduous, hard hours. Yeah. No one... Rarely have I ever heard anyone ever say it's easy, you know? Yeah. So what made you say, okay, I'm going to go to medical school and I'm going to work really hard and have long hours. And on top of that, I'm going to do research. Um, the decision, I mean, when you decide to go to medical school, you're, de you're kind of deciding, um, like when you guys chose to go to graduate school, that you're going to sign up for something that's really difficult, but you're kind of um, betting on the future in the sense that, you're, you're saying, well, probably at the end of this, um, something really great is going to come out of it. 
for me, I, I was really kind of struck by the opportunity and kind of like the honor in a lot of ways to like take care of people when they're sick. And so um, medical school was kind of the vehicle that I had to use to get there. And so I was, I, when you start off in anything, you never know how difficult it's going to be, which is probably for the good. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, you kind of, um, you know, go along with the idea that you're going to work really hard and there's going to be sacrifices and that um, ultimately you're going to get to this goal that you, that you sought out at the beginning of it. So, um, yeah, I definitely knew that medical school is long and arduous and then residency is even more so. And I didn't even actually know that when I started. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that the the idea that I had at the original that, you know, caring for people is like an honor and a privilege. I think that's still true. And that's still why I like it a lot. So your research is based around uh, pain management for people with sickle cell anemia. Right. Before we get into it, because, um, I mean, you're different from most people that we interview and that so far we've interviewed like optics research. Yeah, um, you are the first one in the math school. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> uh, and a big thing that we, we have trouble with is that when you get scientific research, um, it can be almost like incomprehensible to the, to the lay person, much less. I mean, the same thing goes for medical research. So can you just, in, in layman's terms, define what is sickle cell anemia? Sure. So... Um, on your red blood cells, your red blood cells carry oxygen to your body, and without oxygen, essentially your cells don't work um, over a short period of time. They don't work very efficiently, and over a slightly longer period of time, they don't work at all. Basically, without oxygen, your tissues don't survive. Um, the way that oxygen is carried in the cell is carried on something called hemoglobin, which is a molecule that kind of looks like a web. It's kind of flat and spread out, and it has an iron molecule right in the center of it, and the oxygen binds to the iron molecule. Um, so the molecule of hemoglobin has a certain conformation that it's supposed to take in the cell for the red blood cell to remain its normal shape, which is kind of like an ellipsoid or a circle. Um, what happens with sickle cell anemia is that there's a genetic, um, um, either a deletion or a change in a specific nucleotide part of DNA and DNA codes for proteins and hemoglobin as a protein, if there's a problem or a change in the DNA, as there is with sickle cell anemia, there's specific mutations and really one specific mutation, but there's other ones as well. Then the protein that comes out, hemoglobin, is not normally functioning and normally shaped. Um, so under conditions in which the cell is stressed, the red blood cell, such as, you know, lower oxygen states, like where you get kind of in your hands and your feet or kind of certain other parts of your body, um, extreme cold, if you have like too much acid or too much base in your blood, if you're dehydrated, if you're at higher temperatures, it causes the hemoglobin molecule to go from a certain conformation to another conformation. And because um, hemoglobin is such an important and large molecule in red blood cells, it causes the red blood cell itself to actually change morphology, change its shape. So a sickle cell comes from the, um, um, the way that the cell looks underneath a light microscope. It literally looks like the sickle of kind of a, a scythe. Um, and the simple explanation is that the scythe shape of the molecule does not allow it to pass through like the microvasculature, like itty bitty little capillaries and venules, et cetera, especially around the bones and the skin and the intestines. Um, the simple explanation from that is that they get kind of caught, so to speak, and that causes inflammation because you have kind of buildup of pressure behind the molecule itself, behind the red blood cell, excuse me, and that causes inflammation and swelling the inflammation and swelling causes excruciating pain, essentially. So patients wow. with sickle cell anemia get excruciating pain um, all over their bodies. 
like a pain where they need to get doses of morphine that would cause like all of us to literally like not breathe anymore because it's so painful. And also what it does is it causes um, eventually um, strokes in a lot of patients. It also causes terrible bone problems. Um, you know, most sickle cell patients by the time that they're late teenagers will have both of their hips already replaced. Um, and ultimately it shortens your lifespan by about 35 years. So it's a really terrible disease. Um, there's the potential, like exciting potential. I don't know if you're interviewing anybody who's working in CRISPR or any other like DNA change uh, methods, but um, of actually correcting that problem. But right now, the best that we can do for these patients is to try to put them on medications that makes it less likely for their red blood cells to go into this sickle shape. And then when they do have these pain crises, which is kind of how we refer to them, also called vaso-occlusive episodes, vaso, you know, just like blood vessel occlusive, the sickle cell occluding it episodes because it's episodic, um, treat them with pain medications and fluids and other methods in order to relieve their pain, essentially. So this sounds like a life, lifetime issue, right? It is. It's a lifetime issue. Um, it, um, it has kind of different peaks in terms of when it's particularly bad. Adolescents tend to have very, very bad sickle cell. It's, it's not understood exactly why, but it's something about the endocrine axis and changing the likelihood of um, the red blood cell um, going into that sickle morphology. And, uh, yeah, as I said, it's, it's really a life-shortening disease. Um, so it's a it's, it's pretty tragic problem, to be honest. It's really terrible. Yeah, that's true. So I'm really wondering when will parents find out that their children got this issue? How do they find out? Yeah. They find out typically because sickle cell runs in families. It's an, it's an autosomal uh, recessive trait, um, meaning that it takes obviously two parents with like a sickle cell trait. You know, all, on all of your cells, you have two copies of any um, piece of DNA. And mm -hmm. um, if when you're when you produce gametes, which are, you know, sperm and egg, the two copies that have the recessive gene or the gene that carries the sickle cell, um, uh, we create an offspring, then you're going to have a child that has sickle cell anemia. Um, parents find out really because sickle cell runs in their family. And so they're at higher risk. They kind of know when they get pregnant that they have either the trait or if one of them has sickle cell and then they get the child or the fetus appropriately tested. So that they know and so that they can plan kind of accordingly. So they typically know I'm um, at birth. Wow. Hmm. So, so right now, I mean, I think it's especially salient because opiates are a hot topic. Um, but you said that the common treatment method is uh, not only doses, but large doses of morphine mm -hmm. for pain treatment. Yeah, this actually sounds a little bit horrible. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Every aspect of it sounds horrible. So, uh, but and I think that's where your research steps in, though, is that it's it's pretty obvious that using large amounts of opiates is probably not uh, ideal. So, yeah. do you want to talk about what your research goal is or what the method is? Sure. I mean, um, yeah. So the medicines that we use to treat are kind of opiates, just in general. Morphine is one of the most common ones, but it's other ones like Dilaudid and fentanyl. And then when patients go home, they take uh, you know oral forms of opiates, Norco, oxycodone. Oxycontin, hydrocodone, kind of depending on their age and what works best for their pain. And no, it's not good for them long term. Um, you know, long term opiate use just in general is not good for your liver. It's not good for your kidneys. Um, there's this great potential, also, obviously, because opiates also you know create this kind of euphoric feeling um, for abuse in them as well. Um, there's also some interesting um, research, and that's kind of part of where the ketamine comes in. 
in that people who are treated with opiates over long periods of time develop something called hyperalgesia, which is that they have an out-of-control um, pain sensation um, to a more normal stimulus. So over time, patients with sickle cell tend to have worse and worse and worse and worse and worse pain, and it gets more and more difficult to manage. Um, the way that this is thought to happen is through feedback through something called the nociceptive system, which is um, basically a the part of the system that controls um, one's own response to a typical pain stimuli, and then also one's um, um, tolerance to a particular um, medication or drug. Um, what's interesting about ketamine and the tie-in there is that um, ketamine um, research in adults in particular, and also in, in patients who are getting chemotherapy, pediatric patients included, um, and like one or two other chronic pain conditions has been shown to be really useful in decreasing the amount of opiates that people use, and then also um, kind of decreasing the time in which they um, are experiencing pain, right? Because part of our goal is treating pain very rapidly because it's such a terrible sensation. Um, mm -hmm. There's some good evidence that an adult who presents to the emergency room kind of for any reason, like broke their arm, they have appendicitis, whatever, if you kind of give them a mix of ketamine plus opiates, that um, it decreases the amount of opiates that they need to use in order to get their pain under control. And then it also um, decreases the time in which it takes to get their pain under control. Mm -hmm. There's also this um, the idea of the hyperalgesia. Um, ketamine um, attacks a specific, not attacks, but blocks a specific receptor called NMDA receptors, which are excitatory receptors throughout the central nervous system. So the spinal cord and then also the um, brain and also some receptors in the peripheral nervous system. And there's some evidence that ketamine, because it um, interacts with NMDA receptors, and so does the nociceptive system, you could actually kind of interrupt this hyperalgesia the patients are experiencing. So mm -hmm. it's both. It's treating potentially this hyperalgesia. That's the hypothesis. And then also seeing, you know, ketamine seems to be useful in people when they have other types of pain. Is it useful in people with chronic pain conditions, in particular this group that has pain because of sickle cell? So that's mm -hmm. where the ketamine tie-in comes in. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners who might not be super familiar, I mean, I think that the two most common forms you hear about ketamine is like um, an animal tranquilizer mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. That was at least my first, ex well, my second exposure, my first exposure was working at a pediatric dentist's office. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll apply ketamine to, um, it's a dissociative, I believe. So it yeah. can cause the kids to kind of relax before like a yeah. big procedure. Um, so, so yeah, it's and it's it's not normally used at least prior to to this or other studies for uh, pain treatment in this way, especially chronic pain treatment. It's it's new, yeah. I mean, um, there's more and more studies, particularly in adults. There's just not nearly as much in pediatrics, just because it's a lot easier to study adults um, because there's mm -hmm. more adults and there's fewer restrictions on um, what you can do essentially. Because society, and I think rightly so, is very concerned about keeping children safe, which I think makes a ton of sense, and nobody wants to especially a physician ever wants to accidentally hurt somebody with something that they're researching. Um, but yeah, ketamine, we use ketamine all the time in the emergency room. It's a dissociative anesthetic, meaning that it causes you, it blocks NMDA receptors in your brain. And so it essentially causes your brain to stop communicating with itself at high enough doses. And so you literally are just kind of, your eyes are sometimes open, but you're just not there anymore. You're not thinking, you can't make memories anymore during it. Um, and so it allows um, us to do otherwise painful procedures like, um, you know, setting broken bones or doing very painful laceration repairs or other things. Right. right. 
without the kid forming or without the patient in general forming horrific memories and experiencing right. the, the full without pain. experiencing it yeah it controls pain pretty well if you give it it's at a, at a good enough dose and it just allows it allows the person to kind of be absent while you have to do something like a surgery or something else and it's mm-hmm. good in the emergency room because um it's safe to give people who have recently eaten as opposed to like if you guys have ever had a surgery you can't eat or drink for a certain number of hours before because of the risk of vomiting and then choking okay. ketamine doesn't seem to really do that as much which is also really helpful so that's so you brought up something really interesting that we don't I mean us two don't have to deal with in the sense that my research is about measuring mirror surfaces and John Yu's yeah. research is about making the mirror surface. Right, right. So we're we're really tied in on this whole mirror mirror yeah. business. But we never have to worry about like does our research impact well, you, you don't have you don't have living subjects. You don't right. have to worry about whether or not your research or your approach, uh, how it's going to impact the the feelings or et cetera. Whether I mean psychological, physical. Right. Uh, right. So, do you want to discuss? Do you want to discuss specifically uh, who are your subjects sure. and what's how the study set up? Yeah. How how's that study set up? I'm kind of yeah. We can get into more stuff in a second, but. Sure. So more about how the study set up first. Okay. So um, the population is any child with sickle cell anemia that's presenting to the emergency room for a pain crisis or a vaso-occlusive episode, they're synonymous, mm-hmm. um, between the ages of 10 and 25. And the reason that we chose those ages is because children less than 10 are just less able to report kind of what's happening with their pain just from a language and development standpoint. And we um, wanted to start giving ketamine to people who could really tell us if, if they don't like it or it's not feeling good or if it's not. Uh, we wanted to be extra cautious in protecting patients. And so we wanted to kind of exclude patients that are really young. So that's why we started with 10 years old. Um, up to 25 because um, like a lot of pediatric-specific problems, sickle cell, congenital heart disease, other problems that arise in, in, in children. But then, you know, because of medical care, um, people grow up now and get older um, the sickle cell population can go up to 25, 28 years old in pediatrics, which is a lot older than you would typically think of as pediatrics. And we wanted to capture those patients too. Um, you know, those, they're still considered kind of adolescents until the age of 22, 23. That's what people consider. Um, so that's the, the study in terms of the study population. Basically, anybody presenting in the emergency room who hasn't had a prior negative reaction to ketamine. Um, the way that the study is... Um, uh, it's a historical time. It's a historical control study, also called a time series study. And we did this um, for a couple of reasons. But what that essentially means is we're comparing the patients to themselves in the past. So we um, they present, for instance, for a, um, a vasoclusive episode. And uh, before the second dose of IV opiates, we give them IV ketamine at a certain prescribed dose based on what's kind of available in the literature. Ours is 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. And uh, then the rest of their care is completely the same. They can get more pain medications. If they need to be admitted, that doesn't affect anything. If they need to be discharged, that doesn't affect anything. Then what I do afterwards is I have them fill out a survey, and it's just about their subjective experience. The questions essentially are, did ketamine help relieve your pain faster? Did you feel like it helped it relieve it more completely? Um, Do you want to get ketamine again? Did you experience any side effects? And then just a general question, do you have any comments or things that you'd like to tell us? Um, so, um, then what I do is I look back in their charts and I compare patients, um, to themselves. So I look back at the last like two or three visits and I average the amount of opiates that they are using, um, 
like kind of per visit. So like total opiate amount divided by three, essentially. And I look at how long they were in the emergency room during that time period. And I look at how quickly their pain scores went from, let's say, like a 10 to a 5. And I look at were they discharged, were they not discharged. And I compare that to the visit in which they received ketamine. So that's how we create our comparison for the statistical analysis. We did that for two reasons. The first one is that patients with ketamine, uh, excuse me, patients with sickle cell all have kind of very individual places in which they have pain. Um, They have varying levels of pain. So a an, uh, like a more classic randomized double-blind control trial might not be as good in sussing out um, if an individual patient, an individual, not just a group, is benefiting from ketamine. Mm-hmm. The second and perhaps more important reason, which is why I put it second, is um, this is a very um, unfunded study, should we say. Um, so um, all of this is me, essentially. I, uh, the attendings and all the other fellows in the emergency room also enroll patients into the study, but we're not a grant-funded study. Um, this is definitely like a grassroots type of thing. In order to do a randomized double-blind control study, you need to be grant-funded. You need to have you have a hire a pharmacist who can um, you know make a placebo-controlled drug and give it to the patient blindly. There needs to be lots of research staff, and we just don't have that capacity yet. Um, I'm hoping that if this um, study shows to be some interesting results hopefully favorable results, but that's, you know, research is research um, that we can then apply for. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be whatever it's going to be. We can apply for a grant and then do um, larger, perhaps multi-center studies, hopefully randomized studies that would really kind of get at the heart of the matter and kind of getting rid of any biases that may exist in the study that might have skewed the results. So, so this is like the, the groundwork kind of. Yeah, exactly. Because it's never been done in children. Um, it's never been done in adults either. There's only case control studies about people using ketamine. And the case control, a case control study in medicine is like, oh, we had this crazy problem and we did this thing and it worked. FYI. Right. <laughs> right. It's not evidence. It's like, oh, right. okay, that's interesting, but does it actually do something? You know, so this is the first kind of study about that. So, huh. so actually what I realized uh, before we move on anymore, because if we have a, a a parent or really almost various people listen to this is, is ketamine, are there serious uh, negative side effects to ketamine? Like, is it, um, you know, like you said, morphine, there is obvious serious side effects, but we have to use it. In the case of ketamine, are there like obvious serious side effects, but you have to use it or? Right. There's less that's known about So there's kind of dissociative levels of ketamine, and those are the higher doses that we give to people in order to anesthetize them. Um, So that's more like, for instance, one and a half milligrams per kilogram. You know, we're Mm -hmm. giving patients 0.2, 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. You know, so, um, you know, um, five to six times lower doses than you're giving to someone to cause them to dissociate. Um, There's a lot more that's known about the side effects of dissociative ketamine. There's, you know, we've been using ketamine for 40 years for that indication. And about 2 or 3% of patients will experience nausea and vomiting at those doses. Um, about 1% of patients will experience respiratory compromise, meaning that they um, need everything from a little bit of oxygen given to them to um, they need somebody to put a mask over their mouth and breathe for them, all the way up to and including um, needing to put in a breathing tube for somebody if they were to stop breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in my experience, the last one I should just add, the last one is that some patients just find getting ketamine to be very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it causes you to feel com- very out of body. 
Some people can describe it as kind of being in like a very trance-like state or that they're having um, dreams or hallucinations that are very scary at dissociative doses. I find that a lot more in kind of adolescent patients than in younger children. Younger children seem to tolerate the medication better. Maybe it's because they have less active imaginations before they're going in to get the ketamine. I'm not certain what the reason is. (laughs) So we kind of set our bar um, as high as possible in terms of safety in the sense that we're saying, well, based on the literature, kind of the maximum that we would expect is that 2 to 3% of people get nausea and vomiting and a certain percent of people get respiratory problems and a certain percent of people, which is about 1%, We'll get um, kind of this dissociation feelings that are very uncomfortable um, mm-hmm. in order to make it as safe as possible. So we, we put that very upfront in the consent form um, and um, allow the parents to decide. And it's a totally voluntary study and it doesn't affect their care in any other way. And um, one huge thing that we're looking for in this study is, is this a safe and reasonable thing to do? You know, we think based on higher doses and based on historical studies of ketamine at dissociative doses that it's a safe thing to do is it safe in this population? And, um, you know, the only 100% true way to know that is to do a study. You know, you you do everything you can to protect patients that are in the study and um, um, boards exist such as the um, Institutional Review Board and the Committee on Human Research. And their only job is to make sure that you're doing something that's safe and reasonable because everybody in medicine was supposed to take the Hippocratic Oath that says that, you know, first do no harm. And that's true. You know, we don't want to advance anything if, if it's going to hurt people. So um, that's something I think about a lot, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important, too, for our listeners to remember that, um, especially when it comes to medicine, it, it, it is a treatment for something that's going wrong normally right. when, you, when you go into the hospital or when you go to the doctor. Uh, and inherently kind of the act of applying some fix just statistically, and this is kind of the the ugly, weird, hard to comprehend side of statistics, is that there's always some risk associated. Yep. It's not like you give. It's not like you do something and it's just like, oh, there's zero chance that anything bad will go wrong. But it's more so weighing how likely is that uh, uh, the chance of something going wrong, and how impactful or severe would that bad outcome be? Yeah, totally. <laughs> It's that, and then it's also, um, you know, in medicine, what are the risks of doing something to treat something? What are the risks of not doing something? Mm-hmm. Right? So um, a big one, you know, that we come up with in pediatrics is whether or not to do CAT scans for children who hit their heads. Right? Nobody is 100% certain what the risk of ionizing radiation is in terms of long-term risk of cancer. It's very low, like one in thousands, but it's not mm-hmm. zero. And so you're constantly weighing that. You know, how did the child fall? What do they look like? Are they vomiting? Do they have signs of a skull fracture? Things like that. Because you're totally right. There's nothing. There's no such thing as free lunch in anything, but especially in medicine. There's risks right. and benefits to everything that we do. But we're trying to, as you said, maximize the risks of something and, and maximize the benefits. Excuse me, minimize the risks of something and maximize the benefits. <laughs> <laughs> to maximize the risks. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so one, one last thing before we... Uh, talk about, unless you have more questions as well, but before we talk about kind of the, how the study is going is one of the ways that is common to, to determine pain that a person's feeling is something called the faces scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I first learned about this, I found it 
very interesting. I guess it makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, because pain is a subjective thing mm-hmm. and it's really hard to measure. But do you just want to describe the faces scale, which uh, I believe you guys use? Yeah. So, I mean, there's 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 a few iterations of the faces scale. The one that we use is from you know, um, one to ten, with one being, you know, essentially no pain. Um, and then 10 being 10 is supposed to be the worst pain that you can imagine. Um, the faces scale, I think part of the goal is to, um, take out that number 10, just a little bit <laughs> because people will <laughs> oftentimes come in and they have a headache or whatever is a problem. And they'll, they're, they're sitting there and they're texting on their phone or whatever. And they're like, I'm in 10 out of 10 pain. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody, as you said, has a kind of a different definition of that. So what the faces mm-hmm. scale does is kind of applies a kind of like facial expression, a silly two-dimensional smiley face facial expression to the number. So like right. one is like a typical smiley face and 10 is somebody who's crying and holding their eyes closed and is red because it hurts so bad. Right. Um, so I kind of like it in that reason. I totally understand why it's like kind of a also ridiculous sounding idea because it's like these little cartoons meant to assign pain. But hopefully it makes people when they see the scale kind of um, – match um kind of their internal feelings about how they're feeling and kind of the external way in which they're expressing it so that's yeah. the faces scale so we use it for kids because kids aren't able to quantify things very well especially you know that kind of peri 10 year old thing you know right right um so we use it because you know a nurse can look at the patient and a parent can look at the chart and they can kind of come to some sort of consensus like well you know he looks a little sad and it's probably around six yeah, or something yeah. like that yeah yeah, I actually think it's quite, um, well, quite efficient for kids. Yeah. Because they don't know how to bail it and they don't know how to hide it. So basically, yeah. it's the truth. No, totally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, kids kind of in, in, in an interesting way, too, because kids also, um, and adults, and if the ones that never grow up, have like um, varying abilities to control their internal sensations and emotions, right? So the younger kids, like you said, something's wrong, they're going to they're gonna let you know about it. You know, they're not going to hide it in. Sometimes to such a degree that like, oh, this kid looks really sick. They look like they're in so much pain and it turns out they have constipation, right? Something like that. So it's a, kids are an interesting group to try to measure pain. And that's part of the reason why we started at 10 years old. Hopefully, you're starting to get kind of some self-control on your ability to express yourself a little bit more and control over your emotions and things like that. But yeah, it's it's a tricky business scoring pain in children and in anybody, but I think especially children. Huh. Um, yeah, I've, I I did a volunteer work one time one summer and in Belize, and they placed me in the ER in a small hospital in like a small village hospital which I should not have been there. Uh, I don't know how this whole thing happened, but I remember a a police officer came in having like a pretty severe dog bite wound on his arm. Mm -hmm. And he was, I mean, he was riding high from adrenaline. He was like, it's fine. That dog, what a rascal, you know? And then about like 10 minutes later, it was just, uh, he was obviously and rightfully so in severe pain. Yeah. Whereas you also see some people who will like trip and fall and scrape their knee and they're like, oh my God, this is the end of the world. Right. So it is, I mean, it's something, if you don't think about it, it's something that as a medical professional is really hard. Yeah. And I have to, I have to do something to treat pain and it's dependent upon how much pain they say they're in. Right. So it does make sense, especially for kids that you, you, know, well, you have some technique. One thing I would add about it, I think the um, patients with sickle cell are a particularly special population. There's been a lot of, um, I would say, prejudice, unfortunately, that still exists in the way that people with sickle cell are treated. 
I think for reasons that we could talk about, um, in that sometimes people don't believe that they're in pain, which is very unfortunate because there's a very clear and obvious like pathophysiologic, like a physiologic reason why they should be having severe pain. But, you know, in people who have pain for such a long period of time, they develop different methods of coping with it than like if you or, or I or, you know, any of us were to break our arm or have an appendicitis, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's something that we're not used to. It's not something that we're used to dealing with. And so like, oh my God, my right side hurts so bad. This is awful. I'm crying. Whatever's happening. Um, you will see patients who... Um, they have very physiologic signs if you look at their laboratory findings and if you look at x-rays of their bones where their hips have been replaced and et cetera, where they should just be in absolutely excruciating pain when they come in for these facial occlusive episodes. And this is where the faces scale breaks down because a lot of these patients will learn to deal with their pain by really trying to externalize it to something else. So you'll see patients who have sickle cell and they have terrible hip pain right, at the site where they've had their hips replaced. So you know there's this real physiologic process that's happening that's causing this really excruciating problem, and they're sitting there and they're playing on the phone. And they're doing that not because they're not in 10 out of 10 pain, because those kids actually are, (laughs) you know. They're doing it because that's the way that they are coping with their pain that happens to them sometimes every single day. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes sometimes people with sickle cell are in pain for weeks at a time. And there's like you get treated for it and you're taking these pain medications for it, but it never truly goes away. And so I think that um, it's just really important to think about, you know, what it would be like if you had pain constantly and, you know, what what kind of methods you would um, kind of develop in order to deal with that pain when nothing really relieved it. So, and extremely severe pain. And extremely severe pain. And so this is something that I run into a lot, unfortunately, with people who are a little bit less familiar with sickle cell is that they, they look and this happens all the time, unfortunately, somebody will come to me and they say, yeah, you know, they say they're in 10 out of 10 pain, but they're looking at their telephone, right? Mm -hmm. And then you look at their medical history and, oh, they've had a stroke. Oh, they've had both their hips replaced. Oh, their shoulder is, you know, is replaced because they had such bad, um, you know, essentially like a stroke of your bone. You know, that's what happens to these kids' bones. Um, And so it's really unfortunate. Um, and people just need to be really cognizant. Hopefully, if people listen to this, they know that like people with sickle cell anemia, if they're in the medical field, you know, even if you're looking at somebody, you really need to take people in certain instances at their word because they can be doing different things that you may not understand to deal with their pain, but it's very real. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to add that because I, I didn't want to like poo-poo the person who is sitting and playing on their phone. You know what I mean? Because there are certain people with chronic pain conditions that's like, well, that's what they're doing so that they don't yell, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, all right, so why don't we move on to how the study's going, um, if you if, if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, uh, we are about two-thirds enrolled, I would say, based on, based on effect size. You know, you create a sample population like the number needed um, in order to like have a, a, the power for a study to find a difference should one exist. The, the way that we based our study was on the adults um, that showed about a 30% reduction in the time that it took for their pain to be controlled on a like numerical value um, as opposed to like a le- yes, no quantity. Um, and so we came with a number of um, 90 patients based also on the way that the study's designed. If it was a study that was comparing one totally different patient to a totally different patient, you would need two times as many patients 
but because we're par- comparing patients to themselves, um, mm-hmm. it also is kind of a benefit of the way that the study is designed. Um, we need to get to 90 patients in order to potentially find that difference that may exist. Mm-hmm. So we've enrolled probably about um, close to 60 patients, I would say. Um, we are how, how long has this been going on? It's been going on since um, June of, gosh, let me think, June of 2016. God, that's stunning that there's been 60 people that you have enrolled that have sickle cell anemia. Yeah, and we see about um, close to 400 patients a year that have sickle cell anemia. Um, you know, 400 wow. visits for sickle cell anemia every year. So, um, you know, it should be potentially even easier to enroll them. But understandably, there's varying levels of wanting to be in the study, um, which mm-hmm. I totally get. And then there's patients who don't qualify because of they're in the wrong age category or they, you know, they've had ketamine in the past and they didn't find it to be a, a pleasant experience or things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're, we're doing everything we can to enroll patients. It's, it's, um, it's difficult because the emergency room is an extremely busy place. Um, there's constantly a lot of stuff going on. It only gets worse in the winter time, you know, when our numbers swell from 120, 130 patients a day to 250, 260 patients a day. It's just a lot busier. Um, you know, you, there's about 17 attendings in the emergency room here at Children's Hospital Oakland, and then there's um, four fellows and trying to get everybody on the same page and thinking about enrolling patients for ketamine and knowing how to do it properly. They're all challenges to enrolling patients. Um, some of which are alleviated if you have extra funding in order to have research assistance, right? Because their only job is to enroll patients. Um, so, but the study is going, I think, pretty well. I mean, we're getting closer to our number needed. Um, we may not make it just based on my time course and my fellowship, but if we don't, I think it'll still be an interesting result because nobody's done it. And even if there's kind of a trend towards statistical significance, which is always a little bit fuzzy to say, is that true? Because that's kind of against the idea of statistical significance, right? How can you trend towards something being significant? But uh, people do it. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it'll be an interesting result either way. Um, right. I think in general, people are, uh, my sense from looking at just the subjective data, kind of the, um, the survey data, is that patients with sickle cell in our study are subjectively benefiting. We presented at the Pediatric Academic Society in San Francisco, which is a large pediatric meeting um, this, last, this um, last spring. And about 70% of patients um, want to have ketamine as part of their pain plans in the future. About 60 to 65% of patients thought that it relieved it faster and more completely. Um, so I, I, I felt really good about that because I really want to treat people for pain. So like my big goal is to, to treat them. And so if they, if they benefit from it, I, that, that makes me really happy. And we haven't had any um, significant you know, negative um, side effects. Um, there's been um, a few patients that um, felt, um, you know, um, odd or, or that they didn't essentially enjoy, like, kind of the sensation the ketamine was giving them. And so those patients, I've, you know, we've made notes of that and they're not going to receive it in the future. Um, but for the most part, people otherwise, you know, there hasn't been any time where there's been people who have had trouble breathing or a severe, you know, reaction to the medication or there hasn't been kind of higher rates of nausea and vomiting than um, opiates. Opiates also cause nausea and vomiting, and we're seeing rates that are about similar to opiates as well. So all things considered, I think it's going pretty well. Um, I'm excited about it, and uh, hopefully we can keep enrolling and get to the number that we need to. That'd be that'd be great. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, uh, we'll see. <laughs> you guys know. <laughs> yeah. never, you never can tell how things are going to turn out. Yeah. 
Um, well, that's yeah. So, so like even even families, you think you've had pretty good response from because uh, if it's if you're dealing with minors and the, yeah. the parents yeah. have to enroll them, so yeah, I think so. I mean, um, parents are understandably. And this is one of the challenges in all pediatric research. They're understandably very cautious when it comes to something that's new and different because, you know, it's their children. It's the thing that they care about the most in their whole lives. And you're saying, you know, take this, take this way that you know works. Maybe it doesn't work as well as it could, but take this way that you know that works and it works for them. And I want you to do something different and I'm asking you to trust me. That's a hard ask, you know, for a lot of parents. Um, but I think families in general have been really um, open to the idea. If nothing else, they're open to listening and considering it for the future. You know, like, you know, I'm not, I'm just not ready to do that today. Um, I just kind of want to stick with what I know because my son or daughter is in pain and I just want to treat them that way. But, you know, we'll think about it. And I, I think that's great if we could kind of increase awareness that there may be other ways. And ketamine, I think, is just one of a, a like a huge swath of like, modalities and medications that we could potentially use to treat patients with chronic pain conditions. We've also had um, part of the study design is that patients can be re-enrolled about four weeks after they have their pain episode. And um, that's because the literature considers that to be a separate pain episode because it's lasted kind of uh, a certain period of time. And so um, we re-enroll them in order essentially to make more comparisons to make our, st um, our um, study more robust. Um, and there are certain patients that come in, and unfortunately, they come in with quite frequency with pain. And every time they come in, they say, oh, I really want ketamine. You know, I really, really I think ketamine really works for me. Um, and so the plus side of that is that if we could show that there's some benefit, um, it could really become um, a part of a standard pain regimen. Because right now, if somebody comes in two weeks later after they just received ketamine, the way that the study is designed, I have to say, I'm really sorry but because we're studying this medication and because it's an experiment, I can't give you ketamine for two more weeks, <laughs> which is unfortunate, you know, because it's something that really helps their pain. And there's there's ethical questions on both sides of that. You know, do you treat people with a medication that they believe exists, believe is, is, is uh, excuse me, doesn't believe exists, that they believe is helpful, um, even though it's not been shown to be helpful or not helpful, it just hasn't been shown at all, or... Do you study it? And during that study period, do you not allow patients to get the medication? Um, we are acting out of an abundance of caution in the sense that um, it's an experiment. It's an experimental medication. We don't know if it works. And so we're saying that the risks of giving it to patients, uh, you know, out kind of outweighs the potential benefits during the experiment, at least. Mm -hmm. So once the research ends, it seems like, can they, can they find a way to get this Ketamine again or not? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's interesting in pediatrics, there's lots of medications that haven't um, like formally been studied for certain indications because it is so difficult to study certain medications. So there's this whole idea of using medications off-label. You know, the FDA is responsible for labeling what a medication is supposed to be used for. That being said, we still use medications that are um, that have not been kind of FDA labeled to do a specific thing. So, um, you know, ketamine is a medication that's available in the emergency room and in the hospital in general. And so I would imagine, particularly if, um, if we are able to show that there's some positive benefits to ketamine, that ketamine definitely could become a normal part of um, sickle cell treatment, which would be great. Um, but I, I definitely believe strongly in treating people with things that um, I believe in treating pain 
So I don't want to like poo-poo other treatments that may not have enough evidence behind them yet. Like acupuncture, a lot of people believe that acupuncture is really helpful from pain. And my point of view for that is acupuncture does harm you. And if you think acupuncture helps your pain, even though I don't have a good study that says so, great. Let's use acupuncture to treat your pain because pain's terrible. Um, but I think especially when you're giving somebody a medicine that does have, it's a medicine, you know, and, and like we talked about with risks, there's, there's risk to any medicine you give to somebody. I think that it's kind of on us to show that it works mm-hmm. objectively. I have, so I have kind of an off topic question, which is, um, do you, do you, do you have any particular feelings with, um, like it's, it's necessary. I mean, it sounds obviously necessary for these patients that they have to get uh, pain treatment and that that comes in the way of opiates for dealing with their pain. Um, but I, when I speak to people, I think that there's some misconception. So I think that you'll speak to to people and they'll say like, oh, obviously heroin's really bad. You would, you would never want to use that. But if you went into the hospital or if you went into the doctor and they said, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you some Oxycontin or uh, what have you, then it's kind of like, yeah, well, of course, I'll use it because it goes by a different name than what I consider to be dangerous or harmful. And also because, you know, the doctor told me to use it, whereas you might run into pushback. Like you're saying, you might have some people who say, well, I don't know that I want to use ketamine. Like I have some negative predisposition or some negative image of it um or even on like a a far less grounded or or less factually based example you'll have people who have cancer who will use who uh will smoke pot to help deal with their cancer or with the treatment um but there's some stigma about it and i'm just wondering if you have any any feelings this isn't this isn't based on the research or anything but Mm -hmm. any feelings on the fact that there's some broad acceptance societally to use opiates, which in some fields, if you called it heroin, you'd be like, wow, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. If you call it morphine or oxycotton, it's medically necessary and useful. But in other cases, you can take something that might be less uh, dangerous, but there's a, a large, larger stigma against it. Um, I'm just wondering what your experience is with that. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, you're both scientists, right? And so, um, I come from the point of view that everything in the universe is a chemical. You know, um, you drink water, that's a chemical. You can overdose yeah. on water. Did you guys ever hear the story of the people who died from drinking too much water trying to get a Nintendo Wii on a radio show? Yeah, the, the competition, yeah. Water's dangerous. Headlines on CNN, you know, water kills. I think everything's <laughs> a chemical. Um, I think drawing arbitrary lines between chemicals is really nonsensical. Um, particularly when people talk about like food and organic and not organic food, you know, which I think is really funny. Just make, thinking of what the word organic means, you know, carbon, right, but um, right. they mean it in a different connotation, of course. Um, I think that um, it's interesting how there's kind of power that physicians have in order to kind of medicalize something and make it a treatment just by the way that we talk about it. Um so like you're alluding to, heroin is um, kind of the root molecule for like all opiates. All other opiates are root molecule, you know, are, are, come, are derived essentially from heroin, except for the synthetic opiates, which are structurally different, but they act on the same receptors. Um, other medications um, that we use commonly in medicine are derivatives from other illicit substances. You know, um, lidocaine, 
cocaine. It's from cocaine. You know, um, it's the same. Uh, it's the same molecule. People, you know, our pharmacists who eventually abused it, unfortunately, because they didn't know what it did. You know, found that you know rubbing it on certain parts of the body with water um, made the skin go numb. Well, that's a very right. useful side effect, right? And so we medicalize it by saying that um, it's not morphine. You know, it's not heroin for your pain. It's it's morphine. You know, it's Oxycontin. Right. It's Norco. It's not cocaine. It's lidocaine. You know, and there's lots of other examples. Um, people are are you know starting to use um, MDMA. You know, ecstasy, which is mm-hmm. a type of amphetamine that also people don't like to think about because it's you know it's an amphetamine which is a scary word to people um you know to treat depression and to treat bipolar disorder and to treat post-traumatic stress disorder and there's some good evidence that maybe it works better than the medications that we're currently using Mm -hmm. um and similarly i think that uh it's really unfortunate um how uh particularly um um other illicit substances and i think most notably kind of based on national movements you know medicinal marijuana has historically been said that this isn't a medication, it's just a dangerous thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though, um, you know, there's, especially in the non-kind of psychoactive parts of marijuana, there's there's really good and advancing evidence, and I'm really excited about it, that while you have this medication that really, uh, and in terms of the non-psychoactive part of the molecule, uh, is good for like kind of a variety of indications potentially, it really opens up um, a possibility of, you know, tapping into something to treat people for problems which is what I think all doctors are most interested in um, that may have fewer side effects than the things that we already do. So, so I think it is interesting how people think about um, stigma um, um, based on those things. And, um, you know, uh, for instance, like you were talking about heroin being, you know, very dangerous molecule, but because, you know, your doctor says that it's a safe thing that you should take for your broken ankle, that therefore it's a safe thing to take while these other things are, they're not medicine. They're, they're not a, it's just a somewhat an arbitrary line that I think people are drawing. Yeah, I think also, um, and this has been something that um, has arisen out of the opiate crisis, is that when I started training in medical school, there was a tremendous emphasis um, on the idea that we are under-treating people's pain, that we're not giving them um, kind of their due in, in saying, like, well, we're being too um, um, parental or um, hierarchical in the sense of saying that we're judging too much when people are in pain, and that you know, giving patients um, doses of opiates is not going to contribute to them getting, um, you know, addicted to opiates. Um, and while I think that that can, I think that that is true, and we still use opiates. You know, we use opiates all the time. You know, you if you broke your arm tomorrow, your doctor would write you a prescription for opiates to go home with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the difference now is that we're recognizing our role in assigning something as a medicine. So this is a medicine, therefore it's not dangerous. That's really changing. Right. You know, I talk to parents um, where, you know, before we wouldn't re- necessarily talk to people as much, like we're going to give you this medication and it's a pain medication and that's it. It's pain and it's medicine. So therefore it's safe. I say, you know, so your son or daughter broke their arm, you know, so I want you to give them ibuprofen all the time. And I want that to be like the number one thing that you treat their medicate that you treat their painful with. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to give you this super strong medication. You know, it's called Norco or it's called whatever, an opiate. And, you know, these medications, um, I'm going to give you just a few doses just to make sure that if you're in a bad way in the middle of the night and they're uncomfortable or it's, you know, just worse for the next couple of days that you have something that you can rely on that's going to be OK. But I want you to know that these medications come with more risks. 
you know, these mm-hmm. medications are similar to morphine, which is similar to heroin. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard in the news that there's this tremendous problem all across the country with people getting addicted to these medications. So I think it's both people realizing that um, just because something isn't called a medication, that it doesn't have medical benefit. And also things that are called medical medicines potentially can be dangerous. You know, yeah. I think it's kind of both sides of that. Physicians, you know, changing the way that they talk about things and people being a little bit more open-minded to potentially what treatments might be available for people. That's what I would like to see just in everybody. <laughs> That's yeah. my soapbox, so I'm off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that it would be ideal if people were a little more rigorous in analyzing how they uh, define riskiness, I guess, mm-hmm. in general, especially when it comes to substances. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something that I've gotten on the soapbox about where people will say like, oh man, well, I want to eat this way to lose weight or, you know, whatever, I want to exercise more. I'm just not losing enough weight. And uh, I will propose sometimes the most blasphemous thing in the world, which is like, oh, you could just stop drinking alcohol for like yeah. a month or two and see, see how you feel, you know, see if yeah. you lose any weight. And it's like, well, why would I, why would I do that? Yeah, that's or, crazy talk. <laughs> Right. Or like we need to ban um, whatever substances. And it's like, yeah, I mean, everything's dangerous to some varying degree. Again, yeah. I'm sorry to harp on alcohol. It's, just, it's not it's not like I have anything particularly against it. Um, but it's, it's just, you know, people kind of use or don't use things somewhat arbitrarily without without really understanding it. But. I think so. I mean, um, it, you wouldn't need to look very far to find, you know, 100 negative side effects of alcohol. Yeah, uh, in every organ system. However, um, there is very good evidence that alcohol decreases your likelihood of getting diabetes, strokes, um, heart attacks, and dementia. Yeah. At and moderate it, consumption. Right. So what does that mean? Is alcohol a dangerous thing or is alcohol a medicine? I don't know. Isn't it both? Yeah. I mean, aren't most things both? I mean, doesn't everything have like a normal dose and a toxic dose? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, with the caveat being cigarettes. So nobody should smoke cigarettes. Those are not good <laughs> in any way. No, uh, no th- that's just bad for every single part of your body, and uh, there's definitely no medical benefit to cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Most other things, though, think- don't fall into that camp. <laughs> <laughs> I always think that people, goes to the, people go to the hospital because they think they can, they can get better soon. So they sometimes just accidentally enlarge the advantage of certain medicine or the disadvantage of that. Yeah, that is my idea. Is it a disadvantage to go to the hospital or an advantage to go to the hospital? Well, to I, mean, I, mean, I mean, the medicine, the medicine, I mean, the side effect. Mm, yeah, sometimes it's, yeah. Uh, I mean, because they always want to get better. Mm-hmm. So whenever they get to receive the prescription, sometimes yeah. they're going to enlarge the a good side of it will think, okay, once I take it, I'm going to get better. Right. I definitely right. will get better. But sometimes it will just, uh, let's see, uh, enlarge this negative side effect mm-hmm. and say, okay, I'm really afraid to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we we definitely run into that a lot. I mean, yeah. um, you know, particularly when parents are concerned about their, their children, um, they're concerned, you know, it's the most important thing for them. Maybe it's the middle of the night and they saw them do something scary or they've had a fever or some other like alarm bell that goes off in their brain that says, you know, I need to go make sure that my child's okay. Right. And the corollary that comes out of that is there's going to be something that we can do about it. Right. The overwhelming majority of children that present to the emergency room with fever and cough have a cold, you know, (laughs) 
98% of them, maybe 95, I don't know. So a lot of them have asthma. A very small percentage of children will have pneumonia. An even smaller percentage will have something worse, right? Yeah. And so they go to the doctor because they want to get better faster and they want to make sure that everything is okay. Mm-hmm. And by proxy of that, they want you to give them something in order to fix them, in order to solve this problem. Well, there is no way to solve a cold. You know, you need to wait. You need to make sure that your child's vaccinated so that it's not some terrible problem. Because, boy, in the age before vaccinations, if your child had a fever, a lot of times it was a terrible problem. <laughs> you know, they had whooping yeah. cough or they had measles or they had diphtheria or they had things that unimaginable things that kill children that nobody remembers because they've never seen them. Um, so, um, and like you said, you know, when you use a, a medication, sometimes well, let's say you use a medication inappropriately. Let's say that you're a doctor and you're really concerned about making a child better or making sure that they don't get worse. And even though you can't find anything that looks like a bacterial infection, you say, you know, that cough, I don't like how wet that cough is or some, some argument like that, which I hear occasionally. I'm going to give them some antibiotics, right? Well, antibiotics treat bacteria. Um, if you don't have bacteria in your body that are causing an infection, um, they're going to kill off normal bacteria, which can contribute to getting um, serious bacterial infections like um, C. diff. Have you guys heard of C. diff? Yeah. Yeah. C. diff is a, is a bacteria that normally lives in your intestine, and the reason that it doesn't cause terrible diarrhea and terrible colon disease and sometimes like sepsis and sickness and death is because there's other normal bacteria that stop it from growing out you know, too much. You give people antibiotics inappropriately, and they can get C. diff, and they can get really sick. Older people can get sick, and they can die. Um, there's lots of other side effects of antibiotics, uh, everything from promoting resistance to antibiotics to, um, you know, allergic reactions to, you know, other side effects. So um, it's hard. I, I think that I'm not sure if it's an American phenomenon or if it's just a worldwide phenomenon. When we're concerned, we want an answer for it, and. Unfortunately, in medicine, as in life, there's oftentimes not um, easy answers to complex problems. Um, and we definitely can make things worse by giving medications and other treatments when they're not appropriate. Yeah, I'm with you. There's, a, there's an interesting interview that I listened to um, with a medical historian. And we really don't need to get into it because it's fairly off topic. Uh, I don't want to go too far over time. but. It was just interesting that she was presenting that at one point in time, kind of the a common medical model in the U.S. was that you had teams of doctors who covered various specialties, and they would have patients come to them, and the uh, basically the 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 patient would pay the team of doctors directly, so there was no insurance companies or anything like that. Um, and she was just describing that it kind of changes the incentives in the sense that there was that cost cost starts being a big driving incentive, which you can argue about the pros and cons of that. But that there is a lot more uh, pause to think about, like, man, if I'm going to do this procedure, does it make sense? Does it make sense as a doctor for me to charge the patient directly for something? Um, or does it not? I think that's kind of, those incentives have kind of changed, especially in the in the modern age of uh, insurance, where you can get larger or, or more costly services or pharmaceuticals, and you don't directly see those costs. But but that's it. I mean, that's something. I'm not here to argue morality, but it's just it's something that a lot of people say like that's fine. If I'm sick or if my kid's sick, I want everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I want there to be no 
question about it. I want everything, which again goes back to the fact that there is some risk always with everything done. But mm-hmm. anyways, that's kind of a separate issue. I mean, I think um, there's always this there's this idea that if you get people to kind of pay for their medical care, that they'll be more careful in seeking it, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think that there's not. I think that I don't entirely disagree with that idea. The problem is that the like the truer history of like poor people in the United States and everywhere is that that simply meant that they didn't get any medical care. Right. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that it kind of behooves at least physicians um, and I, I think society too to think less of the times when people are kind of ab- abusing the system, quote unquote, or wanting everything. Um, I think that that's something we have to address, especially in expectations about end of life care when we're doing things that aren't going to prolong life and actually might make things worse. I think that that is actually where the majority of healthcare expenditures are in the area that we need to, you know, get rid of the most. But that being said, um, I also don't ever want somebody to try to decide when they're sick and worried if they should go to the doctor because they don't have enough money. Right. right, right. Especially when it comes to their children. I just think that that's not... I just don't think we should assign a, a like a, a dollar value to that. You know what I mean? So it's it's like everything else. It's an in, it's an imperfect like human enterprise. Like you um, create a system which everyone can access, and there's going to be people who abuse that system. Mm-hmm. But my point of view is that uh, that's outweighed by the the moral good that's done in having access. But that's just my point of view, and I think that there's arguments on both sides about it. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. How do you control yeah. cost while, you know, making sure that people have access to care? It's uh, mm-hmm. boy, that's a. You guys should fix it. Go ahead, fix that, it. Yeah, that'll be, <laughs> that'll be the next. That'd time, be great if time. you could. That'd be super duper. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So just before we wrap up, then, kind of getting off of these heavier philosophical yeah. topics. Uh, <laughs> let's have some easy. Yeah, let's now. let's throw some softballs. So what were what were hard things about? What are some of like the hard things that people wouldn't know? about being a doctor or about med school? Um, um, we I, talked to, I, I, before, before you answer, I guess, when we talk to graduate students, especially graduate students doing scientific research, their common issues, uh, they'll usually say like, man, well, I can do months or years of work and you get a null result. So you don't get anything out of it. Or just kind of toiling at something that isn't understood or appreciated you know, or having to deal with advisors that aren't great advisors. But after listening to you, and I mean, you know, I talk to you, I, I know your work hours. I usually stop complaining quite quite a bit after speaking to you. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear what, what, what are the challenges for you? Everyone's got hard things about their job, you know, just first of all. But um, I think people don't have a sense, especially kind of when you're early in training, um, I think people don't have a sense of kind of how long and uh, kind of arduous, both in like a financial and then kind of like in a personal and also a time way, you know, it is to be a doctor. You know, in our country, we have some of kind of the longest training. You know, it's, I, I tell people sometimes they have no idea, you know, like, how long have you been in school? You know, it's like, well, when, which school, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, four years of college, four years of medical school, three years of residency, three years of fellowship, you know, I minimum, you know, to do my job. You know, that's a ton of training. 
you know, that's 10 years after you complete college. You know, that's a lot of postgraduate work. You know what I mean? And so one thing that's a little bit hard um, is that when you come to somebody and you try to explain to them, for instance, especially somebody who's worried, let's say, about their childhood and their child just clearly has a cold, right? And you're trying to explain to them why you think that they have a cold and they just um, think that you don't care, you know, that you haven't really thought about it, you know? Um, and I don't ever want people to feel too much deference towards doctors because I don't think that you should feel too much deference towards anybody. You know, mm-hmm. there's good doctors and bad doctors, unfortunately, but boy, almost everybody cares about it, you know, and they've really <laughs> shown it by like how long they've done it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, because I tell you that I don't think you have X problem, you know, I want you to think about it. I want you to come back with more information. If you have it, you can seek a different opinion, but boy, don't think that I didn't think about it or care about it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's one of the things that I find just difficult about the job. The other one being too, when, um, everybody, when they go into an acute situation is hyper-focused on their own reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of the night when staff is, is lower and some emergency emergency comes in, a car crash, a gunshot wound, something like that, a lot of things have to stop in the emergency room so we can go and take care of that. You know, mm-hmm. it's very hard, especially when something tragic happens, to then go to a room and see a patient and they're livid that you haven't seen them and their child has a, has a runny nose or something. Mm-hmm. That's very hard. Um, while I also recognize that it's the hardest position in the hospital is to be the patient. You have no control. You're waiting. Nobody talks to you. Sometimes you're worried. You don't understand. Again, you're worried. And like, why am I sitting here in this room waiting and nobody's coming? Nobody, nobody must care. I guess I would want people to know, like, we're doing just the best we can, like all the time. And if I don't come and see your child, it is not because I was sitting somewhere. <laughs> it was because something <laughs> like terrible was happening, usually, you know? Right. Um, so I don't mean to complain too much about it. The overwhelming majority of people are uh, like super nice and, and, and awesome and welcoming and helpful. And um, there's, I think, a lot of appreciation on both sides. I appreciate the trust that people place in me just by letting me care for them. Right. So, um but I just want people to know that, like, we're doing the best we can, essentially. Um, that's probably the hardest part of the job. Yeah. Right. So do you have any suggestions for people who want to go into this area? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you mean, like, how to best get into the area or what do you – there's a lot of – I guess there's a lot of different ways to answer. Let's, let's say that you ran into a kid who was an undergrad and they were – Saying because because I have two friends right now, both who separately uh, are. They said like, yeah, I think I'm going to take the uh, MCAT. Like, I think I want to go to med school. What would you tell them? Um, I wouldn't tell them. Maybe this is surprising, but I wouldn't tell them about how hard it is or how long it takes. Um. I, should, I would say that they need to be at least somewhat aware of that, but I would really ask them to search their motivations for doing so. Mm-hmm. I think that um, 
the biggest thing that we can offer people a lot of the time in medicine is compassion. And it's not an answer because sometimes there aren't. And it's not a medication because a lot of times there aren't of those either. And it's not a treatment because sometimes we don't want to make things worse or sometimes we're not sure. But we can always offer compassion and care for people. And so I would just really encourage anybody who's thinking about going into medicine, why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you want prestige and money? Um, you know, boy, there's other ways to do that. Um, right. Especially if you're in um, pediatrics or psychiatry or family medicine, um, you know, you get paid more than the general population by a lot. And I'm, I'm not saying that you don't, but, um, you know, if you want prestige and money, you can do lots of other things. You can do different things in business, for instance, things like that. Mm-hmm. I would just really encourage somebody to kind of search their own motivations for something. If their motivation is that they care about people, I think the rest of it is a lot less important. Mm-hmm. If they care about people and want to take care of them, then that's great. That's if you got that, then you're good. You can do the rest of the stuff. You know, you can do the hours and you can do the money and you can do the work and all that stuff. But uh, you have to care about caring about the person in front of you. That's what I would say. And I would really discourage people who don't from going into medicine. <laughs> um, <laughs> apart from like super technical things and there's you know there's there are different parts of medicine you know if, you, if you're going to be a psychiatrist all you're going to do is talk to people all day long you know if you want to do um if you want to do burn graphs you know for patients with terrible wounds or whatever or burns um and you are super technical and hyper good with your hands and etc you know you may not need to have kind of the same level of kind of at least um, discussing kind of empathy and compassion because you're expressing your empathy and compassion another way. You're taking care of that wound. You know, like you can express that compassion in radiology by interpreting a CAT scan, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I just really think that there has to be that caring about people. And if you're in it for other reasons, I think you're going to be disappointed and I think it's going to be easy to get tired of it because you have to care about it. It's a human institution, you know? So uh, that's what I would tell them. If they're they're interested in going into medicine, if they're thinking about doing it because they're like bored or they don't know what else to do, that's not a good reason. They also don't they also don't need to be like Mahatma Gandhi and care about like the, the soul <laughs> of humanity. But if they care about people and they want to interact with people and they want to have a job that's like social and community based and you know individual personal based, then then I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. So, uh, awesome. Thanks thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thanks for listening to me blather on about things for a long time. (laughs) Hopefully I didn't say anything Uh, ridiculous. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We look forward to any comments or feedback you may have. To leave a comment, please visit our website at loft.optics.arizona.edu slash podcast, or our Facebook, which is SPL Report. Additionally, you can email us at thespotlightreport at gmail.com. 
Lastly, we would like to mention that we are always looking for new topics or people to interview. So if you have a topic that you would like us to cover, please let us know. Thank you and have a good week.